Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Sport Business Finance Weekly podcast, where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I am joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. We have turned the calendar into October, one of the big months in the uh, North American sports calendar. But of course, we uh, keep our thoughts uh, for the uh, folks, uh, particularly in Southwest Florida, following the damage from Hurricane Ian. As this podcast is dropping, the uh, Sunday night primetime game between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Kansas City Chiefs has has happened. That game remains a go because Tampa itself uh, did not get the uh, the brunt of the damage as uh, as some of the towns to the south of them. But just uh, a terrible situation down there. Absolutely, Eric. And again, we do uh, think about all the people there and, and hope for the best. I think outside of the U.S., it's an interesting weekend as well with the NFL game in London. The NBA is in Japan, other activities going on. So uh, so it's a pretty interesting week overall in the sports calendar. Yeah, we've got a lot to unpack this week across the uh, industry here. Uh, big developments happening in women's sports and college sports, the National Football League that Chris just uh, referred to. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Arnie Reese from Velocity Capital Management. This was a uh, newly formed entity that Chris actually mentioned at the end of last week's podcast, where we've got Arnie this week, and we're going to go into some depth about what he's got going on here. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. Very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Arnie Reese, co-founder of the newly formed Velocity Capital Management. Working with co-founder David Abrams, a former executive with Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, Reese and Velocity plan to invest up to $50 million in early stage sports, media, and entertainment companies with enterprise values up to $2 billion. Backed in part by top-tier entities such as Delaware North, Bolt Ventures, Signify Wealth, and Remington Ellis Management, among others, Velocity has already closed on an investment with Camp NYC, an experiential retail business, and is targeting a closing on two other investments before the end of the year. Prior to the formation of Velocity, Reese served as head of North America operations at sports data and content company Sport Radar, and also has held executive level positions at ESPN and UEFA. He is now an advisor to Sport Radar and also works in an advisory capacity for the Bundesliga Americas team in New York in a chairman position. Arnie, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. So obviously just gave the short version of your sort of career history here, but uh, uh, there's a lot of operator experience in what I just detailed there. What was the inspiration for you to make this move now to become a full-time investor? Well, the interesting thing is I actually had a face before I joined Sport Radar as an investor already. And it's my Sport Radar, the last three years of being the CEO of the America's business was actually a bit of a career diversion. I had already worked, you know, for about five years, really on the investing side. The reason I was involved with Sport Radar, I was chairing the U.S. board, was because I actually had a pretty sizable investment of an investment group into Sport Radar, and I was helping them on the operating level. And I then stepped into the CEO role because the company wanted to IPO in the U.S. and to help all that along. So the interesting thing is. The sporator thing in so many ways was a bit of a career uh, diversion for a while. It was always 
a plan to be, you know, a time limited thing once the business went through the IPO, once everything was set up and once the we had built a very a mature US management, which is now all the case. I'm kind of going back to the advisory role that I held at SportRadar now. And so, yeah, it was an incredible experience in many ways. And talking about operating, you know, it was not planned to be this. Uh, it's nearly three years now, but it wasn't planned to be that long. COVID came along about three months after I started. And you can imagine all of the, you know, related issues to that. So, yeah, it was a wonderful time. But I was always a bit more focused on the investment side already. So I'm um, returning to what I was really in my career plan with, with doing this with Velocity. Arnie, you know that there are a number of sports funds that have begun in the last several years and, and seems to be a proliferation of them, actually. What is the mission and strategy of your new fund and what differentiates you from some of the other vehicles that are out there? Yeah. So. I'm not always sure, you know, I'll be really intelligent to talk about differentiation because a lot of these things, as you know, we like to have these boxes and we have to, you know, and, and, and we like to have easy to understand labels. So the, the one thing that David Abrams and I are focused on and what we have discussed with the investor group that's originally backing us is we have pretty good experiences in the space understanding what will make money and what is is a bit of a fad and and a bit overblown, right? And so what we're going to be focused on is companies that have um, found a good way of exploiting the underlying intellectual property. That's what I've always fascinated on. It's really the power of the intellectual property in these spaces, which is so stable and which is, you know, counter-cyclical economically. So we're looking looking for companies that have found a good mousetrap and that can sometimes be driven by technology and sometimes not. And then ideally the mousetrap, you know, has shown that there's a monetizing model that actually has traction and that also has some pricing power attached to it. And it has a management team or the kernel of a management team to then take it to the next level, right? So our focus is really stuff that has, you know, hit Ideally, you know, somewhere north of 10 million in revenue. Sometimes it can be less, but it, it's certainly not a lot less. And where we now know it needs to go into the next phase, we we have a good nose for you know what needs to be done. We uh, we have uh, think we understand the investment cycles. We understand how the industry works, and then try and shepherd these companies through a three to eight year period. I'd say to help them really really mature. I think that's what we understand. We understand the sweet spot and how that works. And it's kind of, you know, the hard graft that goes into it. And that's what we want to apply. How that then differentiates from a lot of these models, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. You know, obviously the label is growth, um, but there are a lot of labels. And at the end of the day, you know, it's it's really very simple. You got to shepherd these companies to have a, a really great business model that produces a lot of free cash flow. And, you know, and, and once you get there, however, the market situation, you'll have a good business. So within that strategy of shepherding these businesses through these periods, what would be sort of a typical entry point in terms of a check size for you, a stage of where you're coming in? some particular sectors within that overall media and entertainment landscape, what's going to be sort of a typical entry point for you? So the the check size 
now versus the check size, hopefully in the years will be different, right? So as you said, we've closed one. We were very close to closing another two that we've been working on over the last months. And so at the moment, the check sizes for these deals are between five to 10 million. That has to do with the with the capital that has been raised. Basically, at the moment, the capital has all been raised in a, a friends and family round. And we are now, over the next 12 months, going to do a more institutional race that hopefully then enables us to do larger check sizes. Uh, but at the moment, uh, with what we got, we're between 5 to 10. In an ideal world, we raise enough capital, it'll be more like 10 to 25 in terms of the sizes of the investment. When you think about that LP base, Arnie, it sounds like, again, you've got an initial group of investors. You're going to be going and getting some additional investors. How do you want those investors to help you? Is it important to have people that have strategic connections, relationships? I mean, how are you thinking about the LP base? I mean, obviously, any investment base, any LP base, in an ideal world, you want it to be strategic. I would say the what we've done to date, what the backers that we found, they are very much ticking the strategic label, you know, and that's why we've put this together. And that's, you know, why We've tried to do this as a friends and family round. And, and, you know, the company has been operating for a while, by the way, before we announced it, as you can see from the fact that we are closed one deal and are nearly about to close two more. The reason we now are making this announcement is that we're putting ourselves out into a more institutional world, are targeting what you, you know, family offices, and then the, on the lower side side of the, of the institutional investor world. And I'd say, strategic value from the LP base is nice, but uh, for this round, it really is about raising capital, right? Having having dollars to invest. So I mentioned this uh, initial deal that you did before this experiential retail business, Camp NYC. Why them? Why did they become number one here in your funnel and what makes them special? First of all, why them? And and I'll fairness, it's because they were there, <laughs> and you know we uh, we were starting, and and we you know we we were building our funnel, and and we really liked them as a business. It's it's pretty much in the sweet spot what I talked about before. This is a proven management team. The business has you know about three four years of operating history. It has figured out an interesting mousetrap. It uses you know. Uh, a lot of the retail space that you see abandoned today, it uses it to actually create experiential experiences. Uh, it has a lot of traction. It uses a very, very interesting mixture of technology and also just understanding the build out of a retail space at, at reasonable cost, plus licensing intellectual property from rights owners. You know, you saw that they are at the moment having a big Disney experiences, uh, and then the potential to build your own intellectual property on top of that. So the mixture of all of that, the the stage of the, where the company is, it's it's you know it's 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 got tens of millions in revenues and it's it's growing very fast. It has a very you know a profitability is around the corner, and you can really see where this goes. You know, you don't have to extrapolate um, a horseshoe business plan three years down the road and, and take your bet on it. That's those were all the pieces that we really like. XESPN and I understand the value of the Disney IP very well. So they have a great long-term deal there. And we could just really see this thing really popping. And um, you know, that's that's the sweet spot that we got. And and that happens to not be a sports deal in this case, but it really represents kind of what we're looking for. 
Arnie, when you talk about shepherding these businesses and helping them, that could take a number of forms, making introductions, serving on boards, coaching the CEOs, helping put together management teams. How do you look at that role of helping the portfolio companies maybe in the next level of detail? Yeah. I mean, and first of all, I do think the operating world is helping. We're not taking control investments. I think, you know, if we sit here, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, catch up again two years from now and hopefully we have a pretty sizable fund and we've done a decent amount of deals, I'd say, you know, I hope we will discuss uh, two years from now that we will have done 10 to 15 deals. I would say pick the number 15, maybe one of those will have been that we are actually doing a classic private equity investment that we control a company. It'd be very, it's, you know, be an exception. I'm not excluding it, you know, if the right one comes around, but fundamentally we are, you know, a growth investor. We want, uh, we will have strong, we have strong negative protections in our, in our deals. We uh, will take board roles. We're suitable. We will not be in a position to, to hire and fire management and tell them what to do. That's not what we're aiming for. And, with the size of the management of the team that we're putting together and the time we can devote, that's also not suitable. So it will be, as you say, it will be pretty much in any case, some form of board involvement. It will be helping, as, as you know, this one thing about this industry, um, you know, which we've all been part of for quite a while, it is a bit of an insider industry. It does work relationships and introductions and 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 helping using a network to help it along. I think more than other industries that I've uh, been exposed to. So that part would definitely be helpful. And then using, you know, our experiences, as I say, my, my experiences, I have a mixture of operating and investing experience. David is a very, very powerful, you know, investor who is, has got, you know, 30 years of investing experience across a variety of fields between us whether it comes to, you know, advising a company how to structure their balance sheet, whether looking to build a management team, whether it's coaching a CEO, those are all the things that we're planning to help with. But, you know, I also don't want to overplay this, but one has to be a bit honest. There's a lot of talk about strategic investors and adding value enough. Been in this game not long enough that, you know, companies need capital and they also need to get on with their own stuff, need to have a good management team on its own. And, and there's only so much that an investor can help. So there's a lot of uh, macro level economic issues out there, a lot of concern, Dow Jones getting battered as we speak here. To what degree do those broader issues potentially impact what we're talking about here and what you're trying to do? Does that make it more difficult to raise money or potentially present some sort of threat to valuations and such? Yeah, I think yes to both. I do think it's probably harder to raise money and this uh, ask me in a year from now right i mean i think we 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 put together an initial critical mass of uh, capital that lets us get started and you know our initial discussions on on the lp fund are all very promising i think we'll be able to raise a decent sized fund under no illusions that that's pro- would have probably been much easier 18 months ago to do right so but i think uh, there will still be enough capital looking for opportunity with what we do that we that we'll be able to raise a good fund um exit valuations are down for the moment i do believe they will stay down for a while um they were they were quite inflated and then um that means obviously when you look at investing in a company as, as the exit valuation informs your returns you're going to have to look you know at, at what price you buy in but i also don't think it's going to be as dramatic as it sounds right now right at the end of the day when you when you can build good businesses that produce free cash flow 
and that have a long-term ramp, there's always a place for that. There'll always be a place for them to be traded in the public markets if they're big enough, and that won't go away. And so, you know, my favorite ways of looking at the the investing world is it's you know it's this curve of irrational exuberance uh, to begin with, then the valley of disillusionment, and then you look at the steady state of the you know of investment. We're clearly in the valley of disillusionment in a lot of these things. The good news is there will always be a steady state. And um, and the one thing about these industries that we're targeting, they're very, you know, as I said at the beginning, they're all built on very, very lasting and powerful intellectual property. That's the one thing that has always fascinated me, you know, in the sports industry. I started on the right-selling side for UEFA. And, and you can kind of see economy up, economy down, the value of the intellectual property does not really go away. It's one of the most stable pieces of assets around. And then if you, if you understand the ecosystem then derives from that, right? And how it can be exploited in many different ways, that'll always be there and only growing. And it's largely also immune against technology disruption. If you are understanding, if you can uh, invest in the side where, you know, where the intellectual property is stable. So Overall, it's it's clearly not the happiest time in to be in, in anywhere in, in an economy. But again, after the valley of disillusionment always comes the steady state. The best, I think the best technology vintage deals that I've ever seen were done in 2002, 2003, you know, right after the, the first breakup. So I think it's a pretty decent time to invest. Well, Arnie, speaking of peaks and valleys, we've seen the betting space explode from the perspective of consumer engagement, involvement, handle, yet at the same time, many of the publicly traded betting companies have taken a beating in the stock market. Why do you think that is, but maybe more relevant to where you're going in the future here, how does that affect the way you look at the betting space as an investor in some of these private companies? So I think that precisely follows irrational exuberance, value of disillusionment, and then see whether there's a real business, right? And clearly now after irrational exuberance, it's now the valley. So the one thing that we know, and uh, I know this very well because I looked at these numbers as part of my job every two weeks and I'd see them, that this US betting industry will be by the end of the decade, somewhere between 30 to 35 billion in revenue. Right, not handle and not all of these things that are thrown out there. Genuine revenue to the uh, value chain of the people that participate. Right, and as you know, that's a value chain that goes much deeper than the bookmaker. So that's a big part of money that didn't exist at the beginning of the decade. So you're creating a totally new industry. So how does it work then? in terms of the profitability along the lines of the people that participate in this industry. At the moment, I think the investor market understands the very front end of that, which is the bookmaker, which, by the way, interesting that people were so exuberant at the beginning because you look at the actual bookmaker business around the world. It's not like we don't have data. It's not like it hasn't been digital you know, in many places, so you don't, couldn't understand the model. It's a retail business. It's a tough business in many ways. It's a great business, right? It's a very stable business. Great companies like Bet365 have been built on it that are super profitable. But it's a hard gig. Customer acquisition costs are high. Technology is complicated. Building this licensing is complicated. So 
these are hard businesses to build that take time, take a lot, a lot of investment and a lot of, you know, attention to detail, mastering of complicated technology. And they're not just popping like that and then being super profitable. And so I think people are now, you know, confused between the great expectation, then seeing, oh, this might never go anywhere. So what I think on the front end side, these will be good businesses, that, but they will be closer to Gap and Walmart than they will be to Google. And But that doesn't mean Walmart aren't awesome businesses. And then you have a whole value chain behind those, also trying to get to this 30 to 35 billion. As you know, that's the space where I've worked on the supplier side. And that's a variety of businesses from verification, from trading, from data, from you know all kinds of, those are very technology heavy. And the way those work is um, they're very sticky in terms of the integration into the front end. And there's a lot of great ideas of businesses that enable new revenue, right? And enable new markets and new stuff that people hadn't thought about and that are truly accretive. And those down the line businesses tend to have a slightly higher margin and tend to be less disruptable, right? It's it's uh, they 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 are more once you do these integrations, once you service the once you play that services its customers well, it's really the cost of change for a customer is really not worth it in many cases. Again, you have to be very very high quality, and so those businesses will be higher margin, and there's all be very very interesting business. A lot of very interesting businesses. Uh, existing business like Sport Radar will really benefit from this growth. Uh, new businesses will be born that uh, will also have really stable business models around it. Again, so to summarize, look, the 30 to 35 billion in revenue doesn't go away. There will be profit, quite a lot of profit to be made from that 30 to 35 billion. I think we're going to figure out how much, um, but that's a hell of a business that can be built around. So the uh, Web3 NFT crypto space is another area that's been through a lot of similar peaks and valleys that we've been discussing here. Do you think about that space in a similar way as betting or do you have a different thought on that? I mean, I think that space is a has a much more complicated value chain, right? And that people are figuring out how that value chain truly works. It's a bit like esports. I think people are still figuring out the exact value chain of esports, who truly benefits from the IP, what is defensible, you know, what's the value of a team, a league. Um, and I think the NFT space is like that. It's figuring out who owns the intellectual property, how is it used, what's actually defensible, then how's the whole licensing world or the legal the legal regimen around it work. And so the, the these things always like in most technologies, new things that we've seen come along will take a while and a lot of hiccups to figure out. And, you know, again, we are not in the business of taking a huge bet on a very young thing and trying to extrapolate how this all goes. We'll be in the business of seeing the ones that have some traction and where we can see, you know, that the risk profile has been somewhat reduced and they need an interesting capital stack to really build the business into maturity. But again, this is not something that will go away. Right. It's for real. We don't know the size of the for real. On betting, I pretty much know the size of the for real in the US and on NFTs. I don't know about that around the world, but we know enough that it will be billions of dollars of incremental revenue to the industry. And then we'll have to carefully see who actually does this well and who's a winner and who's not who doesn't have the goods. Ernie, since you announced your new platform here, I'm sure you have been deluged with companies that are looking for capital. Wonder what uh, advice you would give to entrepreneurs or companies 
that want to pitch you their idea or their business? What what are some best practices as as you think about people pitching you? Yeah, in my case, I would say it's somewhat uh, specific. Don't use LinkedIn <laughs> because I'm the worst LinkedIn user ever. I've I put a put a profile up 20 years ago and I've barely ever updated it. And I've been, you know, I think I did one major update when we IPO on Sport Radar and, and they actually forced me to do it. And I barely check it. I think I, I still haven't updated the velocity thing. So Mike is please don't LinkedIn. It's, it's very, relatively useless for me. And the path I find Again, the way this industry works for better or for worse, and there's also some forwards and it, it is a bit of an insider industry and you need to have an introduction uh, that makes sense. And, you know, and, and come kind of people saying, you know, I know these guys or I know these guys are really up to something. Um, that's how I've seen really found the, the most promising deals. Well, a lot is happening in and around Velocity Capital Management. We're going to be continuing to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank their co-founder, Arnie Reese, for spending this time with us. Thank you. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly. And we want to thank uh, Arnie Reese again from Velocity Capital Management for spending that time with us. And turning our attention now to the news of the week here, a lot of big stuff happening, as we mentioned at the outset here. And and one of the big things that we've been talking about really all year long and for the last couple of years is uh, all the growth happening in and around women's sports, particularly in North America. We had another big inflection point this week where Athletes Unlimited, this is the uh, entity uh, that's got four leagues now, active listeners of the podcast will remember uh, we had John Patrickoff on a little over a year ago to discuss what he's doing. Well, further momentum for this entity where they've raised $30 million, first outside capital raise, really designed to accelerate their trajectory and and got a number of names, a number of interesting names, both uh, some familiar and some unfamiliar to uh, those uh, actively working and following the sports industry. Uh, some of the known folks, Kevin Durant and his 35 Ventures, Angela Ruggiero, who's also been here on the podcast, active team owner David Blitzer, uh, but also some new folks. We've got uh, Schusterman Family Investments that have uh, been actively investing in a number of other areas outside of sports entertainment. Jane Gottesman from Early Stone, who's going to be joining the Athletes Unlimited board, but a a real show of faith for what they've got going on here and and the model that uh, John Patrickoff and uh, and his uh, partners have put together here. Yeah, John, we had on the podcast last year as well, Eric, as you recall. And what I would say about John is he was ahead of the game. I mean, this is an organization now that's been around for a few years before the momentum in women's sports really accelerated. So so John really, I think, had the vision of this in the early stages. And and now he's certainly being rewarded for that. I'd say this is interesting to me on, on, on a couple of other levels as well. Not only is this a dynamic women's property, but it is a property that really engages and involves athletes. So yep. the athletes are you know, participants in, in equity, they are participants in governance. And I think that's really innovative. And they've done that to a level that many other sports have not in terms of that athlete involvement. And the other thing that's unique about this is that they are what, what is called a public benefit corporation, which I didn't really know much about, but apparently a public benefit corporation is not a nonprofit but it's a company that has by charter the ability to take into account not just profits, 
but people and, and the constituents, as well as broader goals like like you know, environmental goals and in, in, in the health of the yep. planet. So this is a company that on a lot of different levels is really a groundbreaker and path a, a driver in terms of new things. Yeah, really sort of uh, really trying to chart out a new path in terms of that common refrain of both doing well and doing good here. And I think you bring up some great points in terms of sort of the uniqueness of their model and how they've engaged the athletes so fundamentally on so many different levels here. But you know, another really important attribute is just how they structured their competition, that these are not months long seasons. It's not the traditional franchise model. It's it's that single entity within the confines of the structure you've described here, but also just again, competitively, how they go about doing what they do on the field or on the court, it, super hyper-focused that, you know, really short, concentrated burst type seasons where fans could sort of come in it's not a huge sort of time ask time commitment you come in you have this experience and you sort of move on to the next thing and again i think john's really kind of ahead of the game here on a number of different levels and really kind of you know zigging where a lot of other folks are zagging yeah that that uh, competitive structure you mentioned eric is important for the product but it's also important for the cost structure yes they don't have a huge cost structure to deal with and i think we're seeing more emerging leagues approaching the world that way including pll and others that are recognizing that to be a successful emerging league today you, you can't really have this enormous infrastructure, this year-round cost structure. You need to be a little bit more targeted in the way you Nimble. program and you produce events. And I think, as you said, John, John was early on that, but that model now seems to be being adopted by others as well. Yeah, and I think there's a bit of a halo effect looking ahead here that, again, we, we've talked about the money that uh, – the WNBA has raised. We, we've talked about all the progress that the NWSL is now making under Jessica Berman and her team. And we, we've talked about, you know, the sort of the pay equity that the U.S. women's national team and soccer has achieved and all these other things. I think this is another one of those things that as you look ahead and there's issues that certainly need to be resolved in the women's hockey space, potentially, and, and other women's sports. But again, this is a another situation of rising tide lifting all boats. Yeah, there was also a capital raise this past week, Eric announced, for League One Volleyball, which is a volleyball league that Kevin Durant also invested yes. in. Yes. Blitzer so did he, he's, got a, he's got his uh, eggs in both baskets here. Yeah, absolutely. Blitzer was in that, Billie Jean King. And so you're right, there is a lot of momentum. What What is also somewhat curious to me or, or intriguing to me is where private equity is ultimately going to play in all of this, because for the most part, the investors in Athletes Unlimited, really more high net worth folks, family offices, yep. not institutional investors. Maybe that has to do with the public benefit corporation nature of this, where the, the institutional investors really just need to think about making money and the family offices have a little bit more flexibility. But as you mentioned, a number of those leagues, uh, the bulk of them were funded by high net worth individuals or strategics. We have yet to see huge private equity institutional capital fall into this, and we'll see whether that changes over time. But again, we've been mentioning a lot of this other new money flowing into the space and, we, you know, things like Aries come to mind that we just discussed here on the podcast. That's going to be another thing to really watch here is whether those sort of new funds that have really come in with a sort of overarching goal of being active in sports and entertainment, 
whether that money starts flowing in the direction of women's sports. Correct. I, I you know, I do think it will happen. It hasn't been the primary focus of some of those institutional capital partners to date, but but I do expect that to happen over time. Well, much more to come on that front, but turning our attention from one major development to another, we've of course talked a lot here on the podcast as well about all the changes happening in and around college sports. And as the uh, college football season here, the 2022 season sort of continues on and and gets into uh, sort of the meat of its schedule, we've had a number of interesting developments in recent days on this front here where all of the conference uh, machinations are sort of continuing here. And, And right at the top of the list here is the Big 12 in terms of what they're doing under new commissioner Brett Yormark. He has hired uh, WME and IMG, the Endeavor-owned entities, to help drive growth around what they're doing. They're obviously shopping for uh, new media rights, and they've got a lot going on there. And meanwhile, we have some continued reports that the the Pac-12 potentially remains vulnerable. Uh, California regents are act- asking a lot of questions about what's happening with the UCLA departure to the Big Ten. But among the remaining members, there remains you know, a number of reports circulating out there that there could be further poaching going on here. And so, you know, Pac-12 itself still trying to shop media rights, Big 12 shopping media rights, and what these, you know, how the musical chairs are going to play out here. A lot of open questions yet. Yeah, anybody who who knows the outcome uh, is is probably just guessing, but it does appear like, you know, the Big 12 under Brett Yormark is is making some strides to solidify its position. Their TV rights are under discussion, according to multiple reports. This WME IMG hire means they're devoting even more resources to improving and enhancing what they're doing on a commercial basis. The Big 12 just hired a couple of uh, Pistons executives yep. as well to bolster their brand and marketing uh, positioning. So I do think they've got some momentum there. The Big Ten may be doing additional media deals and whether that ultimately results in more revenues that allows them to poach more Pac-12 teams, that remains to be seen. But there's a lot of things still in flux and and everybody is trying to do the best to to drive commercial revenues that they think will give them an advantage in in all of the realignment and and, and attracting more schools. But again, the, my sort of complaint about all of this is the same that it's always been that everybody's sort of looking out for themselves and there's nobody sort of overseeing this from any sort of macro level in terms of what is going to be sort of the best for the overarching competition, the entire landscape. And, you know, the NCAA is still working on hiring its uh, successor to Mark Emmer. But even if that hire was made yesterday, that person's not going to be entrenched enough to really sort of guide this process. And, Again, I think sort of the you've got sort of this parochialism that's still kind of driving all of these machinations. Yeah, there will be probably unintended consequences that may not be great overall. We may end up with a power four instead of a power five. Again, is that better? Is that not better? How does that affect the the media rights landscape? Uh, We've got the CFP discussions going on, Eric, as you know, about whether they're going to accelerate the 12-team playoff or not. So there is a little bit of a macro view probably within the context of, of the CFP. But but when you think about, as you mentioned, the NCAA president chair being empty now or, or at least uh, in transition, yeah. uh, that really creates a big vacuum. And I think people are just going to look out for their best interest in the context of that. Right. And 
I was going to bring up the uh, the CFP situation because that's another thing that happened this week. There were a couple of days of meetings among the CFP board that there's already been a decision now to expand to 12. We've discussed that in the past. That they reversed course on that. But now the big question is whether they can sort of accelerate the timetable on that. And rather than waiting until the 2026 end of the current media rights contract, can they get that expanded format in place as soon as 2024? There's a lot of difficulties around that. There's scheduling issues. There's media rights issues. There's all these conference machination issues. But and discussions are continuing, and there's a, another set of meetings uh, set in about three weeks. But right now, the vibe around that is is nothing's impossible. And I think, again, it's it, the guiding North Star on that situation is much like the guiding North Star on these conference realignments, and it's the money. And there's a lot of money to be made with putting this expanded format in place sooner rather than later, because these are going to drive some of the biggest television. These new playoff games are going to drive some of the biggest television audiences that we'll see out there outside of NFL playoffs. I mean, these are going to be massive, massive audiences, and there's a lot of motivation to get that going sooner rather than later. There certainly is a lot of money available, Eric, to drive that earlier. But again, it comes down to uh, there are going to be winners and losers in that context. And I would say losers could be certain existing bowl games may may seem less important or may be less viewed or maybe less seen as less valuable in the context of this championship. You've got the issues of revenue share and how how does the money that would come in get divvied up? So it's in aggregate, maybe a big economic opportunity, but that doesn't mean everybody is going to benefit equally or there might be some losers, which which creates the political friction that that sometimes drags these things out. Yeah, and that gets back to the unintended consequences you referred to before. There may be some conferences that really don't survive in this new model. And again, does does this whole conversation around CFP expansion and accelerated expansion, does that sort of exacerbate the poaching of the PAC-12 and ultimately lead to the demise of the PAC-12? It's entirely possible. So there's a lot of these sort of things that still need to play itself out and not all necessarily good. No, and and again, we probably aren't going to get into it in a whole lot of depth on this podcast, but the NIL situation is, 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 is out there still as a wild west, not only from the perspective of how are those, you know, rights monetized, but how are certain schools leveraging the access to capital and access to NIL money to maybe change the competitive dynamic and enhance their player attraction. And so there's just a lot of things that are, again, still in flux. Yeah. And there's all the questions still there surrounding recruiting. I think there's been some good progress made in terms of getting platforms and access, player access to deals and and some of the vetting in terms of what are good opportunities, bad opportunities. We've had Blake Lawrence on and you know he and others have done yeoman's work on this issue to try to sort of clean up the space and, and sort of separate some of the wheat from the chaff. But again, there's still some big questions around recruiting that have not really been fully answered. Yeah. And the more that revenue is driven by whether you make a playoff game or not, whether you get to the next phase of a tournament or not, the more incentive there is for just naturally schools to think about what they need to do to enhance their competitive position because there really is a very specific payoff for that. So again, there will be unintended consequences, but in terms of the CFP, at least there is a process going on where there's a lot of uh, voices in the room to try to come out with an outcome that's reasonable. 
Well, much more to come on that front. We're going to hear certainly a lot more before the end of this current college football season. And then as we move into basketball season, we're going to know a lot more around all of this, even by the holidays. So much more to come there. Turning our attention now to the National Football League, we're into a big phase now in in terms of uh, the internationalization of the league. We've talked a lot about this games in Europe, games in Germany and and the United Kingdom, Mexico, you know, real international push coming. Uh, We've got these new team rights that we've discussed at length in terms of uh, the creation of the international home marketing areas. Well, we've got some specific inflection points around this where as this podcast is dropping, the first London game this year has just happened, the uh, Minnesota Vikings, New Orleans Saints. And amidst all of that, a number of specific business uh, uh, initiatives where we had uh, a new lead sponsor for those NFL London games, IG. We've got a really interesting helmet uh, and decal initiative where more than 200 players, coaches, and team officials are either going to be wearing helmet decals or lapel pins or the like to showcase their national heritage, cultural heritage, and really showcase the internationalization of the league. And we've got a number of team level deals where people like the uh, teams like the New York Jets have done a number of interesting things, whether it be with Sky Sports, Charles Turwitt. So a lot happening around the internationalization of the NFL here. And I would imagine, Chris, from your perspective, you know, pretty different situation than compared to when you were there. Yeah, when I was at the NFL, Eric, it was NFL Europe, except five of the teams were in Germany. So it was right. not the same level. And and by the way, I think what's really revolutionary about this is, is obviously they've they've now brought you know not just uh, preseason games but real games real in season games to London. They've done that for a while. They're now adding Germany. But I think the thing that has the potential to have the greatest impact are these team home territories yep. where each of the teams can try different things, whether it's shoulder programming, whether it's events, whether it's digital initiatives. And I think out of the twenty or so teams that are doing that already. There's going to be some great proof of concept, some great uh, learnings that other teams will then adopt. And I think it'll leverage the entire league to drive an international presence, just not some people at the league office, which is kind of the way it was when I was there. Yeah. And for these teams, this is essentially new money. You've obviously just by definition expanded their market territory. But for somebody like the Jets to go out and do a, a Sky deal or Charles Derwood deal, this is all new money. It's it's new money. It's it's fans that otherwise would probably not be as connected to the club. I'd, I'd say that some of the teams like the Jets are using agencies like Sport Five to help them. Yep. So they're leveraging people that have resources in Europe and other places around the world to uh, to give them a head start. And I think there's going to be some real success stories. In some cases, the teams may actually have to invest some money in the first couple of years to get this up and running. So it may not be a huge profit center in year one, but I think over time it's going to be very lucrative and they're going to build the NFL more into a global brand, which which I think is going to be very beneficial. Yeah. And again, not to sort of pick on the Jets here a little bit, but there's an opportunity to sort of come in and do fan development in a real clean fashion. Whereas the, you know, the Jets, you know, they had the Super Bowl three win. There's been a few good seasons, but a lot of bad ones. And there's some, you know, here domestically, you know, baggage around a franchise like that or the Jaguars or some of these others have had a lot of tough times. You do this international marketing, you know, there's an opportunity to sort of come in a little cleaner and bring in fans that, you know, necessarily have not been there for all those prior bad times and don't necessarily know of all of the 
prior twists and turns and, and sort of come in a little more cleanly. There is that opportunity, Eric. I do think at the end of the day, though, to make that really effective, there's going to have to be some on the ground touch points. So I do right. think you're going to have to figure out not just from a 30,000 foot level, put some TV programming on, but I think you're going to have to get players over. You're going to have to create fan fest. You're going to have to create exhibitions. You're going to let need to let the fans touch and feel the product in person. But I do think that can happen over time. And I think the teams are now willing to invest to make that a uh, reality. Yeah. And that's going to be a really interesting thing to see with these games on the ground, whether they be in England or uh, Germany or Mexico, the amount of time that these players actually spend taking photos, signing autographs, those kinds of things, actually interfacing with fans, because I think you make a great point that for all of these great business initiatives that we're discussing here, a lot of that does literally happen on a one-to-one level, player going down a rope line or what have you, making individual connections. Yeah, the other thing that the NFL has not had to the same degree as the NBA, for example, is superstar players that come from different parts of the world. Now, I know they're doing this flag initiative on the helmets. And that's part of what that's intending to help spotlight. Yeah, that there are there are players that have those connections, but it's not like Yao Ming or some of the players that have come in the NBA from Africa or from parts of Europe that are really high profile players whose identities is real are really closely tied to other right. parts of the world. The NFL hasn't had that to the same degree uh, in part, maybe because people are not playing participatory football and, and they're not recruiting the same level of people from around the world, but they're working to change that. And they're also working to highlight that there may not be the same first degree connections, but there are second degree connections to different parts of the world. And there is that internationality about the NFL that that maybe hasn't been realized. Yeah. And this gets to some of the other things that we've talked about in the past in terms of flag football and some of these participatory initiatives in these various territories, whether it be Europe, Africa. Africa, what have you, that this is the marathon part of that whole deal where you work somebody up the funnel that somebody, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old now playing flag, maybe you work them up, they come to the United States, to play college, and then, you know, maybe in eight years time or whatever, they're going to be in the NFL. That's a great point, Eric. And there was also an announcement, I guess it was probably since our last podcast, that the Pro Bowl is being modified to become more of a flag football event. And there is, as I understand it, still the prospect of flag football becoming an Olympic sport. So again, another angle. Which the NFL is helping on. Yeah. So so I think when you add all of these things together, again, it's probably a 10x from the days that I was at the NFL in terms of the strategy around international with a number of different tactics and, and approaches that I do think over time is going to pay dividends. And then just on a simplistic level, seeing these games happen and, you know, in the other leagues doing the same thing that you mentioned the NBA games before NHL is doing some preseason activity over there. We've got a whole bunch of offseason activity in various territories with Major League Baseball. It's just great to see all these events happen. And it's another sign of that we're sort of helping to turn a corner here and what we've been dealing with the last two and a half years with the pandemic. Absolutely. And again, there is a real economic piece to this as well. Again, not to be simple and obvious, but there's right. 300, there's, there's 300 million people in the U S and there's 7 billion people on the planet. So there's a lot of other business to do for these leagues outside of, uh, you know, our, our own country. Right. Well, much more to come there, but as we come towards the end of another episode of sport business finance weekly, as always, we like to take a look elsewhere in the space and see what else is catching our eye. And Chris, I will start with you. Well, Eric, as you know, I am a big fan of the collectible space 
and sort of in that context, I'm 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 looking at uh, Aaron Judge and his uh, his quest to hit 62 home runs, which maybe by the time this podcast drops, he will achieve that, uh, and what that really means for interesting opportunities in the collectible space, memorabilia business. Again, opportunities we saw with uh, Poolhouse his 700th home yep. run, a lot of excitement around that. So these are pretty momentous occasions that now are happening within the context of this rejuvenated collectible space. And it'll be interesting to see what business elements are are used to capitalize on that. And this collectible space, as I see it, they're really going to be one of the kind of at least immediate arbiters in terms of how people really feel about this record and and where it stands and sort of the historical significance. Because there have been three other players who have beat the Roger Maris record that Aaron Judge is trying to reach, trying to beat now, but they've all been connected to performance enhancing drugs in some way. They're still officially on the books. There's no asterisk or anything, but this could be one of those situations where the collectibles market really sort of makes a determination as to whether or not the number that Judge ends up ending with at the end of the regular season, whether or not that's actually the true record, at least in the eyes of the market. Yeah, you know, that, to that point, Eric, I just on a lark went to the Fanatics website and looked at what it cost for an Eric Judge signed baseball it was $699. A pool host signed baseball is $649, except if you buy the pool host baseball that he signed and he wrote 700 homers achieved on, you know, September, whatever, that's $999. So I should have checked to see what some of those other baseballs go for. But you're right, it is a little bit of a marker of where, where fans look at these records and these, and these personalities. So much more to come on that front here. And it's uh, it's been interesting watching night after night here as he's, uh, it's Aaron Judge has been chasing that record. But from my standpoint, I'm, I'm really kind of just continuing to keep an eye on the whole battle between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. We talked about this at length here on the podcast, but there have been a number of uh, further legal developments in this back and forth case. Uh, as listeners may remember, a couple of months back, Live Golf fire, uh, filed an antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour. But in recent days, we've had a couple of developments where Phil Mickelson and several other players have removed themselves as named plaintiffs in this case. And it's really Live Golf itself really carrying the flag as the main plaintiff in that suit. But now we also have a situation where the PGA Tour has filed a counterclaim of tortious interference and has made the allegation that Live Golf is interfering with player contracts between individual players and the PGA Tour here. So we've got a real back and forth. It's still going to take a number of months to play out. We're, We're a long way even from a potential ruling on summary judgment, much less a trial. Trial could be early 2024 at this point here, depending on the court calendar. But these sides are digging in is the real point here. Yeah, that that's that certainly appears that way, Eric. And again, you mentioned months could be years before these things actually get resolved in court. And before then, there could be various settlements. I, I'm certainly following that legal battle as well, but also really following what's going to happen with the live television situation. There were a number of reports over the last week that they were thinking about a time by. No, they're not doing a time by. Again, we talked a little bit about this with Patrick Craig's uh, last week. I think that's the next major commercial development to yep. look out for is, is where they wind up on their media rights. Yeah. And, and regardless of whether it's a time by or not, their options are just inherently limited because, again, given how hardened these positions are, 
entity that has a relationship currently with the PGA Tour, ESPN, CBS, NBC, they have to be considered off the board at this point here. So you're just naturally reducing the pool of potential suitors. You are. And then it's not clear what sponsor or advertiser reaction would be either. So that also affects the economics of what a deal might look 100%. like. And, and that gets a little bit dicey as well. Well, much more to come on that front, but that's going to wrap up this week's episode. Uh, for Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for listening. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.